This is episode number four of Room of Requirement, a podcast dedicated to self-care and politics and resistance in the time of Trump, who is now our president. As of a few hours ago, he uh, took the uh, oath of office. Did you watch the inauguration? I did not. I I, didn't I, I do not want to listen to that man speak. I, I don't listen to most presidents speak, actually, including Barack Obama, because yeah. I was just like... There's a lot being. There's a lot of words to say nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, presidential speeches are full of platitudes, and I just don't think that Donald Trump in any way is a, a particularly good speaker. So, um, I do usually end up reading big addresses. I did read all the. I did read the inaugural address. Yeah. Was my point. Yeah, and that was that was an easier way to handle the to handle the information. In some ways, it's been a rough week, or maybe it's just day one. As as we record as. Riots in D.C. Riots in D.C. Uh, the women's march is in preparation down there. Sure. Uh, it's New York, so there's you know the streets are grim and empty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's also just kind of a dull, cold day. It's anyway. a dull, cold day. Uh, yeah, but there was a big protest last night. Yeah. Um, so, in preparation of all this, how have you been taking care of yourself? Not well. Not well. Right no, now. No, it's, no, it's it's uh, you know uh, it's been rough. It's been a rough week as as the reality sets in. Oh, do you think that there was, in particular, it's just the, it's just leading up to it? There wasn't anything in the news cycle this week, particular, other than, you know, Trump coming to power. Uh, you know, it's not so much what's been in the news, it's what hasn't been in the news, which has been any kind of, any, any kind of reconciliation sure. or, or move toward unity or sure. attempt to even give lip service to the, the I guess, the complaints or, or fears of, you know, 52% of America. Yeah. I guess I figured that there would be some of that. Some, yeah. I, you know, his determined inability to act presidential yeah. uh, uh, or reconciliatory in any way seems... Uh, it's just going to be a hallmark of the next four years. So it's going to be hard, I think, for him. <laughs> so have you been smoking? No, no, no. Yeah. Gym. Have you gone to the gym? I haven't, but I, I've exercised. I, okay. just, I, mean, I've been, I haven't been in Queens much, actually. I've been down in Brooklyn a bunch. Okay. Uh, but I found a gym down there, uh, uh, which I can buy like a week pass to. I swear to Christ. <laughs> You're next, time, next time we meet, uh, uh, I will have, have been to some form uh. of gym. Had done some running. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, so the other thing I was thinking um, as we kind of explore the topic of self-care, um, how well are you eating? Because my wife often asks me that about you. Oh, she fears my uh, yeah, my, yeah, my my, my, my svelte, uh, and <laughs> we just we just think you're not eating like any vegetables. Oh no, I eat vegetables. I'm pretty healthy. Okay. I, I eat vegetables. I mean, I, you know, I do. I I. I, I yeah, can you name them? Like, if you can name the number of vegetables you've eaten in the week, that's kind of a bad. Yeah, I try to have a I try to have a salad with every meal. Okay, and I try to like pack it in there. All right, uh, okay. you know, I take I take vitamins as okay. well. Okay. I mean, that, that, that's not particularly great, but it's something. Full disclosure, uh, I believe uh, you're still coming to dinner on Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> looking forward to that. Uh, for people out there who don't know, Kamala uh, and his wife. Are fantastic uh, amateur cooks. They were all right. Chefs. And yeah. So any meal at their house is a is a chance to. We like cooking. I think it's more to the point. Well, you're good at it. A lot of people like cooking and. Not <laughs> um, yeah. So okay. So vegetables, meal, diet. Um, I was thinking a little bit actually about um, 
my own self-care. And, uh, you know, I mean, especially I've been exercising and whatnot, but there are a couple of things um, that came up uh, just in terms of my own personal health leading into this, uh, in, into the election. <laughs> um, uh, one, I, uh, I got my, uh, I went to the doctor, I got my uh, bandages removed, so you can actually, yeah, 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 actually see the scar. So. It's not too bad. No, 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 it doesn't look that bad. But it looks, me, yeah, it looks like a bad sunburn. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it was it was nasty for a little while. Is um, that permanent? Is it? Yeah, it's never. I mean, I, I don't I don't know if the coloration is going to go, but uh, maybe it'll it'll heal over time. Um, I'm trying to figure out what country it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit like Russia, but maybe that's just on my mind. I think it looks. I think this part looks the this brown part looks a little bit more like Germany to me. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> The other thing I was like, so I went to the doctor just to check in on my wound, and uh, my uh, blood pressure was a little high. And uh, we did a second check, and it seems like it's all right. But it made me think about how well I deal with stress. Right. And I have this idea uh, in my mind um, that I deal with stress super well, but it's just not true. I don't think I don't think it's true at all. Um, and I, I realized this because uh, I lived in the South for so long, and there's a certain way of, of, of thinking about about uh, ignoring what? everything, yeah. Right. About <laughs> the world about, burns, right, right. <laughs> about about having a certain amount of uh, steely resolve slash general uh, uh, healthy skepticism to things, so you don't sure. get so worked up. That's true. Um, but uh, on the way to my doctor's office, I was actually super worked up because the trains were running late. Right? Do you like, get angry or do you? Get- I get a little bit more annoyed uh, for yeah. sure. I mean, just like regular commute. Uh, annoyances and things like that, or even job stress. Like I find myself uh, in my mind, and, I, and I'm not exactly sure if I was ever very good at dealing with stress. I think yeah. people who grew up with me would be like, "No, he was never good at it." But in my mind, I had this mythologized way of thinking about, "Oh, I, I, I took everything. You know, nothing, nothing phased me." Um, which is probably not true at all. Well, but if you see more, if you're like paying attention to more things, then the kind yeah. of stress you're taking on is not the kind of stress that somebody who's dealing with stress by ignoring everything. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I guess if you get older, your life is, gets more complicated. There are more yeah. responsibilities and things like that. So, uh, and to validate your annoyance even further, our train situation in Jackson Heights is out of control. Oh yeah, I think there's a lot of people moving into Jackson Heights, and, yeah. but I mean, there. Yeah, it's a narrow platform, and there are like seven trains that go by it. It's a packed platform. Yeah. I wanted to actually talk a little bit about um, how are you tracking your health? Because I actually thought about this this week, too. Um, and I actually do this, and my wife does this to some degree. Um, I actually track, like, things I do health-wise to see how kind of progress I'm making. Uh, um, and I was wondering if you did that at all. Uh, I do, but it's it's a really specific metric. Oh, yeah? Which is how much I'm, how much creative writing in word count I've been able to do. Oh, okay. Then you keep like a little like tr- you track that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just know like I look and see how much I did in a day. Yeah. And I definitely know my ability to produce creatively is directly really correlated cool. to my how good I feel. Yeah. Okay. All so right. if I'm not writing, I just know something's wrong. Okay. All uh, right. Interesting. I. And it's a virtuous cycle. The more I write, the better I feel. So if I can get into that groove, then okay. I can withstand many things. Yeah, I still had to figure out, like, what is the metric that, like, most correlates to my mental health. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say, um, I, I had, uh, I've been going to a doctor regularly, and so I have readouts um, from my, say, blood pressure tests. And apparently, um, I'll have to actually chart this out, but I think before I met my wife, my blood pressure was running really high, and now it's actually, like, lower. Um, so that is that is an argument um at least in my case, for marriage. Uh, I mean, I'm not recommending it for anyone else, unless that's your thing, but, like... 
right, let's. You want to talk about politics? Let's lead at the top um, and talk a little bit about the inauguration, which um, I would just come in off of it. So, uh, any first reactions? You know, I'm trying not to overreact because. I hate when people overreacted about Obama. Yeah. Yeah, I saw a lot of parsing of the inauguration speech and, like, whether or not this was uh, sort of undertones of fascism because he is very clearly very angry about <coughs> certain things and uh, seems to be aggressively pro-American, which in I guess his taking is, or his way of thinking is, Anti the rest of the world. Sure. <laughs> so and and his narr and the Trump narrative, and I think maybe in his supporters' narrative, uh, uh, the rest of the world has taken from the U.S. and now it's trying to take things back, um, as if that's just fundamentally, I think, wrong. Uh, uh, you know, relationships evolve, and uh, you know, power dynamics change. Um, but uh, and I guess there are also a little slightly undertones of like. You know, patriotism and loyalty and allegiance. He uses the word allegiance. Uh, um, so it's hard to, how to kind of parse all of that out and be kind of have a reasonable way of thinking about it. But it, it certainly does seem like a, a speech of. I think it's a speech that plays to his base effectively. Like this is we are America. We put America first, and we put our national interests first. Um, and uh, almost like a cautious, like watch out, rest of the world, because uh, we are we are unified and we are. Uh, we're strong, or something like that. Um, One quote I'm going to be using for the next four years yeah. is, a heart full of patriotism leaves no room for prejudice. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> the speech itself was whatever. Uh, it's a sort of a Trumpian uh, turn of phrase. Um, and But at the same time, there were protests and riots. So, um, any other thoughts about the inauguration in general? I don't like pageantry. I would... I would prefer that this was our, our one nod to our Puritan roots. Yeah. We're just like in a dark oak room, someone just like, you know, <laughs> okay. one, one reporter is allowed in. Okay. Any kind of inauguration feels anti-American in some ways. I, I was uncomfortable with the Obama one as well, how big it was. And yeah. How, how much people had hope in this one man. But that's just, you know, like, I get it. I mean, I understand how healing it was to, you know, yeah. a vast swath of the American people, but... I, you think it should just be like, hey, here are the keys uh, yeah, to the bathroom? Like, 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 yeah, yeah, don't worry, jiggle them out. <laughs> it should just be like... And, like, like, literally, he just hands him the keys, and he's like, oh, yeah, here's the, like, punch code of the, of the White House, like, whatever. And that's I, it, I'm out, man. I would love if the president was viewed as a bad job. Yeah. <laughs> when people are talking about how catastrophic it is and how out of the ordinary that we have such a crap president, which yeah. we do, that always kind of bothers me, because America's had a lot of crap presidents. Yeah, I mean, there was a whole, like, I mean, from, like, basically Lincoln to what? TDR, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I mean, from from like Lincoln to like like the first Roosevelt, right? Yeah, like, that was a solid stretch of just not great. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Grant. Yeah, yeah, had some real shitheads, yeah. including Andrew Jackson. Yeah, I mean, to my mind, Trump is really more of like a coming home. Look, it's like it's like touching base with like the American id. Yeah, which we have. Trump was elected. Let's say he forty eight percent, whatever. I mean, yeah. it's a significant amount of the population that wasn't satisfied with whatever the Democrats were pitching, and it, it's echoes time and time again. We see it in local politics. So if you want to participate in democratic elections, 
there's something off about your message. The institution of democracy is important. So yes, he's a crap president. Yes, we should do everything we can uh, to oppose some of the terrible policies that I'm sure will come down. But in the end, at some point, we may, as Democrats or leftists, take over that machinery and we should expect... <laughs> and we may expect the kind of civility that we are giving now, right? Like, I mean, there are people who are just going to be very dissatisfied with uh, the democratic, the next democratic presidency, and there is something about, hey, I may not respect the person, or I may not respect the party, or the or, or the policies, but this is what democracy landed us as we, and that's worth at least reconciling yourself with. Yes, that is a fair point, and I agree with you. What do we think is going to change? And I think, more importantly, what do we think is going to stay the same? Because as much as, as, as the tone shifts, or the, the rhetoric shifts, or like the language shifts between Obama and Trump, they're inheriting like the same world just a year later, right? And so there will be surprising continuity in, uh, in between the two presidencies. So it's not, it's not black and white, it's not day and night. The first, first battle is obviously going to be the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's going to be a huge... I, I think that'll be a huge change, but I think when you think about foreign policy, I think it may... And there are going to be certain three lines that, that won't change, right? I think Theresa May's cabinet and a conservative uh, government is actually going to align itself more closely with Republicans, right? That's yeah. just how it goes. Although I think that's a little touch and go. Um, I think the thing is with England or the UK, it's a pretty solid conservative majority at this point. Yeah. Whereas it's it's much more iffy on on this side of the pond, right? It's clear to me that it's very much in England's interest right now for a Trump presidency to occur as a result of Brexit. Maybe not before Brexit, but once they were told they were going to be moved to the back of the queue on negotiating a trade deal with America yeah. as a result of leaving the EU and us putting the EU first, it was in the interest of their political class that we elected somebody who was going to ignore the EU. To your point, that relationship is something that I believe will not change. Yeah, The American left did not embrace... Germany ever, so <laughs> that's going to stay the same, right? Right, and I, uh, yeah, and who Ameri- the American left is allying itself with remains a big question, right? So it's, I mean, Canada, Canada, yeah, I guess, for the while, yeah, for the time being, right? Canada, uh, if Trump decides to crack down on Cuba, there will be some pushback there, maybe. I, I think fundamentally we're talking about an America, and this is why I think there's actually a line of continuity between Trump and and Obama. Both sides want to be isolationist. Like, I mean, it's an, it's not. There is no policy going forth in either party that says we embrace the rest of the world. Let's. We're really excited to form alliances with question mark question mark question mark. Right. So, uh, <coughs> I think we we've entered a space where America, uh, or there's a lot of. There's a lot in both parties that say we want to be isolationist. So no matter who changes, who's a, the head of the White House or who's in charge of Congress, we become an isolationist country. And I, we always were in some ways. I don't think we were particularly like internationalist um, in scope ever. But uh, it, it feels like in some ways that is a return to roots. We are more isolationist. I think that the Obama presidency was one of talking about global cooperation, but effectively taking on a, an isolationist foreign policy um, or a very yeah or very reduced role so a lot of Republicans complain about Obama having retreated from the global uh, 
uh, global scape. Effectively, Trump is trying to do the same thing. He doesn't want to, he's trying to pull us out of certain negotiations, certain alliances, and certain commitments. That's a through line, right? Yeah. You know, a lot is up in the air. We're going to see how the French elections go. We're going to see how the German elections go. Yeah. And I think people are going to be paying attention to them in America in a way they don't normally. Yeah. I think the left, as a result of being out of power, is going to view these elections as proxy elections for yeah. their own ideology. Yeah. And I'm very happy about that. They should. They should pay attention to foreign elections, and they should. Yeah, just on, on the face of it. Not that we're... Yeah. Not that we're expecting the turn, the tide to turn, or no. Anything. But you should. They should be seeing their a reflection of their own ideas in other countries, right. and seeing how they're responding. Yeah, to because uh, modern societies aren't com- aren't super different from one another, and yeah. so uh, the difference between an American polity and a German polity. I mean, there are significant differences, but I mean, there are certain things to be gleaned from. Do you see any other points of, of continuity? Uh, oh, between Obama surprising and continuity. Trump? Oh, yeah, I think several, right? Like, I think... Uh, uh, so, beyond foreign policy, which I think there are going to be th- uh, sort of three lines, Trump may or may not want, like, a, a significant amount of infrastructure spending. And, and Obama... Certainly there was a, an infrastructure bill early on. Um, and the reason that there weren't continuing infrastructure bills was because of the Republican control of Congress, right? Um, so I think in some ways uh, Trump reviving this whole idea that we're going to try to boost infrastructure spending is actually a pretty much a solid plank of the Democratic platform, right? And there's something Obama wanted uh, but just couldn't get through after a couple of years, right? So I think that's one through line. Um, I think in terms of uh, affordable care, I think affordable care, Trump will actually hold intact some things from affordable care. I was talking to someone who's not a Trump fan, but a Republican, and they're talking about how Obama's legacy is going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And I think I'm thinking, no, actually, there's going to be it's going to be a pivot change, and it's actually not going to be. A lot of Republicans complain about Obama having retreated from the global uh, uh, global scape. And effectively, Trump is trying to do the same thing. He doesn't want to. He's trying to pull us out of certain negotiations, certain alliances, and certain commitments. That's a through line, right? Yeah. To your point about uh, the ACA, yeah, Obama's specific legislation with respect to that may be dismantled in part or in full, but I do think his legacy will be forcing the president to take responsibility for the American healthcare system. Right, I think it, it, which it, is is amazing. That's great. Like if we can always pin the fortunes of the healthcare system to the president. Then we can always, you know, use that as that's a new metric that we usually haven't judged the president by. Right, exactly. That it is the there is a widespread responsibility on part of the government to take care of national health care, and or at least some version of health care or health care for the working working class, or making sure health care is affordable to certain people. Right. So the number of uninsured or uncovered or yeah, people that's without health is, is now as important as unemployment. Right, right. And then, well, it's not as important, but it is a metric by which we judge. And so uh, so I don't think the Republicans have figured it out. I don't think they've figured out talking points. And, uh, and in some ways, this is a war. We can talk a little bit about his relationship with his Congress now, Trump's relationship with his Congress. But there's a war there um, because um, putting... 
trying to dismantle Obamacare is not something the president wants as much as it's what the Congress wants, right? And this is an initiative that they promised their constituents, and this is how they feel like they're going to be measured, and so they need to repeal as quickly as possible. And I think, actually, Trump is the one who's actually writing just probably a little bit of sanity, just a little bit for once, um, on the process of, like, we need to know what we're going to do here. And and I think you're right. I think the presidency is going to be graded in some way by how you handle affordable health care. Um, and, and, you know, all these congressional representatives that are interested in repealing the ACA are doing so as a result of vast lobbying dollars on behalf of, you know... Many right, and, and that have been funneled to the Republican yeah. Party, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's, there's both a... And there's a combination of the lobbying dollars, so there's a real incentive, and also just the rhetoric. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the Republican Party has been really adamant about repealing Obamacare, even though it seems to be increasingly important in a lot of the sort of borderline or swing areas that delivered in the presidency, um, continues to deliver them congressional seats. And I think it's hard to talk about taking away entitlements from a working class population. In general, it's hard hard to walk back entitlements in any society. Um, And how you do that without now handing over a sort of a political victory to your opponents by saying, we screwed this up, we we took away health care. It's really hard. Uh, looking at this transition, what uh, the Democrats have to be thankful for right now, this is one of them. Like It was going to be really hard to make ACA in its current form work, and now the Republicans have to deal with that, right? Like yeah. it's, it's their mess to fix. Um, and, and they've got a guy, a perfect gilded man, yeah. who can't help himself from saying, "I can fix it." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he's going to and Trump has said he's going to take responsibility for it. He's yeah. he's promised Just something can't that help himself. He's promised something that's very socialist, um, and you know, healthcare free or cheap and available for everyone. Um, and he just, you know, that's that's something. That's uh, how he's going to follow through. I don't know. Um, and I also think it's interesting to talk about the debate within the Republican Party about how they put forth their their changes in Obamacare, which doesn't, I don't know if it's as important to their base as it once was, but um, repealing Obamacare, they talk a lot about markets and things like that. It seems to me that the Republican Party, or what excites its base, isn't necessarily talks of markets, right? So you're talking, like, I think there's a... The, the Republican Party had, had sort of honed in on rhetoric of, like, free markets, and I just don't think that plays as well as it once did, even to the Republican base. Like, I think uh, the markets are fine, but, you know, healthcare is another story, right? Like, you know, the great leader Trump has talked about how the markets keep screwing over the American people, so uh, it's weird that the Republican Congress hasn't gotten that note yet, that talking about the markets isn't necessarily a, a vote winner. So yeah, I think it's been an interesting time for uh, Trump and his co- relationship with the Congress. I think there are uh, fissures there. I think there are, are, are certainly differences. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the Obama legacy. What we what do we think is the Obama legacy? So I think he was a mediocre president between two terrible presidents. Yeah, but I mean, in my lifetime so far, it's <laughs> definitely been. That. I mean, do you, would you prefer Clinton? Would you say Clinton? I think Clinton was a better president. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like my 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 uh, presidents maybe with a little bit of scoundrel in them, so I'm, I'm willing to say like, okay, I don't care. Or maybe it's just because I grew up in the Clinton era. Like yeah. I was like, okay, yeah, that's what presidents do. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Uh, but I think you know, having back to back presidents 
uh, like Bush and Obama, who had largely stable marriages or what seemed to be stable marriages. I was like, eh, okay, I mean, that's not... Well, that's not the problem with it. The problem with... Uh, free, of scam- free of personal scandal. It just makes you feel like the president is focused and right. has, like, goals and is is not abusing power with a capital P. Yeah, that's fair. And to my mind, that's really important for the American experiment. We need to have people in office that tre- treat it as, a, as something terrible that they've uh, taken on, an awesome responsibility that right. they will discharge to the best of their abilities and ultimately fail at. Yeah. I, I mean, that's... Yeah, I think that tone is important, right? Yeah. Um, and... I guess we're drawing a clear contrast between current president and maybe the previous few presidents. So, okay, what do you think are the key achievements of Obama? Uh, I think he has and has made people identify with, I guess, his administration mm-hmm. in a way that has made them see the Trump administration as particularly catastrophic yeah. in a way that I find useful for the left. How about you? Uh, I, I think he's a. I think he's a really interesting symbol of a change uh, that came to America. Uh, certainly in terms of race, but I think in general, uh, uh, what people are kind of uh, deeming uh, sort of progressive social uh, outlook. So I think there are things that are not going to go away. Um, one, uh, I think. I don't want to denigrate the race issue at all. I think having a president who wasn't white is of huge symbolic importance. Um, and, it, and again, it's a marker of where the demographics are going. Uh, I think also in, in uh, issues like uh, marriage equality or gay rights, uh, I think the president was a laggard coming to the issue, but he certainly presided over an era where it seems like it's fairly established by this point. I mean, there could always be... Uh, a walk back of of these kind of rights that have been gained, um, but I think uh, those kind of progressive issues actually came to the table, and I think they've largely been settled. Right, like up until two thousand six, gay marriage was a wedge issue for the Republicans, and they don't talk about it at all now. I don't know if he always led, but he presided over a change, a sea change in people's opinions um, about both. I think race and gender, and uh, even. Uh, sexuality. That's that's really important, but I think that's also symbolic. It has nothing to do with policy as such. Policy-wise, I think I think he has a very mixed legacy yeah. on, on a lot of things. Um, I think one of the things that I'm sad to see go, I think, is that he, his move towards trying to think about uh, the justice system in a way that challenges the justice system, I, I think we've absolutely reversed course. Um, with our cabinet and with our president. And I, th- I think that's a shame. I think Obama was making progress. That is something I don't fault him for. I think he was moving in the right direction, um, uh, really addressing a lot of fundamental imbalances and injustices that are in, uh, inherent or, or endemic in the justice system, uh, both on a local level but also on a federal level. Uh, I thought that was a really important move. And I, I'm sad that he embraced it sort of towards the end, um, but I think he uh, it's a shame that that didn't go further and it's a shame that we effectively are reversing course and yeah and in the immediate future his kind of inherent sense of fair play will mm-hmm. be a legacy the flip side of that legacy is that uh, he also presided over a particularly um, bitter and angry and divided political 
landscape, at least on the federal level. And so it's not really clear which way that's going to go, right? Um, and I, I and I, you'll see this a lot, I think, with uh, Republicans. They talk about how race racial relations are at the worst they've been in blah 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 years and things like that. And it's really this is not something you lay on the on uh, on the lay at the foot of the door of someone like Obama. This is very much a Republican Party who doesn't know how to reconcile itself with the fact that uh, uh, they are becoming a party of working class whites and that's a shrinking population and that uh, they have never figured out an outreach towards minorities uh, that's been effective. And maybe this changes now um, because they have so much power but uh, in general, I think it's it's been an ugly period in terms of domestic policies um, and, and domestic partisanship or comedy or things like that. And uh, that's certainly both sides of the aisle. That's something that Obama may or may not have helped, um, but the Republicans certainly threw a fair amount of kindling on that fire. Something else that I think hasn't been said enough about Obama is that he is leaving the presidency at a time when most people would be thinking about running for president. He's at his political prime in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and he's not going anywhere. Right, yeah. So unless something terrible happens to him, I mean, he's someone who, um, who can do a lot with his productive years, right? So it's really a question of what is he going to do with it. Uh, the only thing I've seen is that he wants. he's talking about trying to rebuild sort of the grassroots organization of the Democratic Party, uh, which is weird because it effectively crumbled underneath him, right? So, I, I wonder what that's going to look like, right? In my ideal world, Obama would run for mayor of some small town and would have a reality show about that. <laughs> <laughs> and it would just be inspiring people. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, be great at hosting The Apprentice, you know? I Obama. wonder. I mean, he certainly has a high approval rating. I don't, he's not someone who's been mired by scandal. I don't think he's going to go down the Clinton way of trying uh, to build this sort of institution that is uh, sometimes a little bit murky in terms of its financing and politics. So I, I'm really curious to see what he does. And again, whether or not it'll be good for the Democratic Party. He's certainly an asset. Uh, let's talk about doubling down on defeat. Like, what is the... What's what's happening on the left? What's happening on the Democratic side? Because, ah. like... Uh, it's been a really interesting uh, week, I think, uh, just because it is about um, trying to figure out how is the... How does the left or the Democrats, how do the Democrats engage? For my own peace of mind, well, I've been trolling yeah. Trump supporters online okay. pretty regularly. Okay, it's good job. so easy. Yeah. I guess I'm so used to... Uh, trolling the left? Yeah, trolling the left or fighting the left, That which is, you know, maybe you don't have the best good faith conversations, but you at least share reality. Yeah. That trolling Trump supporters is just like therapeutic. It's... Yeah. it's uh, but... Yeah, I found some things that really work yeah. that cause people to just flip out, spend all day writing you yeah. angry letters. Which, in my, to my mind, that's how you win. You know, that's like how you know you. <laughs> this, this is a battle with, with only losers. <laughs> what? <laughs> Pish posh pshaw. Okay. There's partisans out there that sure. need advice. Sure. Okay. Uh, and I found some, so I found some things that really work as far as messaging goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, number one, this is Trump's first job. <laughs> and what do you mean by that? This is the old, the first job he's ever applied for that wasn't part of his family legacy. This is his first job. Okay. 
president of the United States. <laughs> okay, all right. He's never had to have a boss, which I guess is us, the American people. He's yeah. never held public yeah. office. He's never, you right. know, worked in a gas station. Sure. Working a blockbuster, working at Chili's. Uh, this is it. This is his first time, you know, receiving a paycheck. Sure. When people think about that, when they think about uh, who they are as a working class white person, yeah. it creates that disjunct and makes them view how he's operating and, and working in a different way. I think I think it puts him in this place. We have to get used to thinking of him as our employee right. and not as our boss. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, and we should judge him by the metrics we've used to judge other employees of this position. Right. Uh, and see how he stacks up. Okay, all right, so what else, what else works? Number two Ed, is your president should be defending you. You shouldn't be defending your president. They're, you know, yeah. insecure about yeah. who he is and themselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, that Trump is an egomaniac. He's a narcissist. Yeah, he put, yeah. I'll agree with that, yeah. He can't help talking about himself, you know? He's not telling stories about the people he's met on the campaign trail. Right. Or about you know things he's done. He's done that has improved the lives of specific people. Right. He talks about himself. He talks about attacks that have been made against him. Yeah. And, and you know making people realize that all the posting they're doing on Facebook and Reddit is you know in the service of this person who should be instead defending them, making them feel good about themselves. Right. Uh, instead of them pouring all this energy into him. Right. You know. Huh? What's number three? Number three, the women in his life do not like him or respect him. <laughs> I mean, he's married, so... I, uh, and For the third time, sure. to a woman that he has, you know, or confessed to cheating on while pregnant. Right. Uh, and who he will not be living with. So, you know... All right, and, and what are the kind of responses you get when you say uh, the women in Trump's life... Well, I think to the typical Trump supporter, male Trump supporter, which I would say is ninety percent of the people doing the online, you know, defending of Trump. Yeah, it's an insecurity that they have. Right. That their daughters, their wives, do not like or respect them, which okay. is why they identify so heavily with Trump. Okay. So saying that to them makes them fucking go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to fight back uh, by engaging, and it, you know, it it's been. The policy, I suppose, of the left to not engage, to be above it, to when they go low, we go higher, whatever. I I think that's not a good (laughs) way to be. I think when they go low, you fucking shiv them in the back, in the kidney, and you whisper into their ear as they die, you know, like... (laughs) uh, You know, like, I did this for a black man. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You know? Okay. All right. It's a copulative act. You are responding. It works shit out, you know? It, right, yeah. People think about the things that they've responded to, and they start to view their opponent, skillful or not, as human. Uh, you are advocating the shiv in the back. Shiv in the back. Shiv in the back. <laughs> but I, and I think that's that's fair. I think it, it, you are going to... Where you stand up for yourself is a really hard... It's, it's a hard... Uh, it's a hard uh, thing to know where to draw that line, right? Um, because uh, how, where are you overreacting? Where are you underreacting? At what point do you uh, lay everything on the line? At what point do you just let things go? And I think that's something a lot of people, including myself, are, are trying to figure out, right? 
So maybe trolling on the internet, trolling Trump supporters on the internet is your thing. Um, but I, you know, let, let's start with uh, I guess John Lewis, right? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So John Lewis is uh, somebody said I don't think the president is legitimate. He said this about Bush as well, and he's not he's not attending, or he didn't attend the inauguration. Yes. Uh, so um, and Trump hits back and he engages in this war and it's a weird thing because basically it's two like 70 year olds like being crotchety at each other Um, and I didn't get uh, uh, neither of them come out looking great Um, but I think again I just want to go back to the idea of like if there was no real substantive reason to question Trump's winning the election that he's a legitimate president we may not like the results, we may not like where the country's going, but that's, at some point, the Democratic Party is stands to inherit that machinery, right? I, I get what John Lewis is doing, which is saying, prove it. Like, prove to us that you are presidential, and which Trump obstinately refuses to do to his own detriment. It's right. Like, and every time somebody says, you know, you're not doing that, he just doubles out harder yeah. on, you know, being a divisive motherfucker. Right. Know? Uh, and every time, and that's his nature. He does that. Yeah. And every time they can be provoked, and if it can be provoked for four years, you know, that's great because. Do you think there is any way the Democratic Party, through guile and deceit, can actually get Trump to do its bidding? That's a harder question. Um, I think there there is space on certain issues that you could do it. Yeah. For sure, I I don't see. You've I, already mentioned healthcare. Healthcare. I actually think that the Democrat. I think Trump is to the center of his party. I mm-hmm. think that seems pretty clear. Yeah. Um, uh, when the right is like you know uh, Thomas Hobbes style, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fighting for antibiotics right. in the street. Right. I think it's it's uh, uh, right. Right. I think the 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 idea the, that the Republican Party wants to push for, which is markets and healthcare, is something that just doesn't sell anymore. I don't think it's a talking point that. Middle America really cares about, right? And I think because it's, that's problematic. Like the idea itself is problematic; has always been problematic. Um, it has certain virtues, but you know that it's just not a segment. It's not like people are going to go markets, markets. It's just, after two thousand eight, we don't rally for the markets anymore. So the, the Republican Party has to figure out talking points. And instead of doing that, they elected someone who's just a crotchety old Democrat. Uh, so and also before during the Obama years, there talking point was freedom of religion. Yeah. And that's not going to be a good talking point with Trump as your... You know. Yeah, it's it's harder. I mean, he's he's taken on more religious vocabulary, I think, yeah. lately. Uh, I don't know how... Freedom of religion is in some ways a, a, a veil to talk about uh, objecting to things like equal rights for gays and LGBT. Right. Right? But also contraception. You know, that contraception was a huge thing as far as the ACA was. Yeah. Um, so that I shouldn't be pay, using tax dollars to pay for. Yeah, contraception. Know, right. Yeah. yeah. So the, all of these things are, are hard to deal with. I think with infrastructure, and, and we talked about this. I think maybe in our first podcast, it's very easy for the Democrats to be like, "Hey, let's talk about an infrastructure bill," because yeah. uh, you can come down very easily uh, with, with. And the Democrats have been talking about this for years. And I think they've been doing some smart thinking. It's not inherent in the Democrats to think about how to spend smartly, but they were doing some smart thinking about infrastructure, and you could easily do that. Um, and and whether trolling uh, Trump is in any way effective, right? Like, I mean, do you... Is it possible to, like, 
stroke his ego and be like, okay, well, this person listens to me. I'm going to listen to them, right? Or this person's a good person. You may be one of the ten people he listens to on his way out the door. <laughs> that last tenth person is the person who makes up his mind. So maybe now you have a one in ten chance of like actually infecting policy, right? Things that have... Uh, there's a difference between campaigning and working with him or or co-governing as a minority party, right? So how do you get Trump on your side? Because I think he's a little bit of a wild card. Yeah. Uh, and he's an important wild card, but what does it mean for people like John Lewis or maybe John Lewis's generation? Because it's an old generation of Democrats uh, to spend their sort of twilight years trying to work with the president, right? Um Oh, no, it's a question, uh, and I don't think anyone's asking that, right? I think he's so, on a gut level, abhorrent to your 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 foot soldier Democrat that any attempt to work with him is going to have electoral consequences. Uh, except for Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there are some people who will have cover, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I, so there there have to be a number of strategies that the Democrats use, right? Right, and. Certainly, one of them can be setting things on fire. Yeah. Um, which I mean, we can talk about, but I mean, I, it's just not it's not it's not a mode of politics that I love, and I think it turns off a lot of people, and it's and it doesn't help you reclaim the center, and you know, it's it's still early days. But what I'm worried about is that the Democratic Party looks at the Tea Party and it's like, what we need is a radical wing to like mm. capture our energy. And yeah. I, the Tea Party had some electoral successes, but they're not the people who elected Trump, no. right? Um, that's just not true at all. Um, and I think, in a lot of ways, the Democratic Party is uh, the victory kind of blinds from the fact that they are still within the grasp of a majority, in at least in the Senate, um, and winning presidencies, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I think the, the House is a longer struggle, but um, they are a party that continues to hold majorities in terms of popular, popular votes, and that in itself is a force. Uh, to my mind, their strategy should be ignoring Trump altogether and creating some sort of like shadow government apparatus yeah. like other countries have. Yeah, yeah. Talking yeah. about every day how they would be running things. Yeah. Uh, to That's give what a, Lindsey Graham did with foreign policy. Yeah, to give a counterpoint, yeah. a rational counterpoint to let people know that they're not reacting, they're putting forward things. Right, and it just seems like the Democrats seem so wrong-footed like in terms of they don't know how to handle it a Twitter troller of a president. Okay. People are really overreacting. And it, I wonder when the Democrats are going to be like, okay, well, you know what? We're just going to let this news blow over, right? Like, right. we're just going to let... And as Trump refuses or is unable to ever be presidential, the Democrats have a golden opportunity to drive home the point that any member of the Democratic Party would be a better president than Trump. Right. Okay, any setback you receive is all, uh, like it can be seen as an opportunity. And I think the Democrats have never seen that as been like, oh, okay, actually this is a good thing for the party. Yes, there are a lot of things that are close to our heart that we're not we're going to have to like we're going to see ground on. Um but what are the advantages we have now that we're a minority party? No matter who was handling it, Syria is a quagmire, right? <laughs> uh foreign policy is it's hard to deal with. All for and the difference between uh, the foreign landscape uh, yesterday as opposed to today is minor and neither party has a really good sense of uh, or a really great vision of how to handle something like as complicated as foreign policy. I would say the same thing about domestic economics too. Um, so there are a number of things where the, both the country and, and the world uh, very complicated and uh, the Democrats 
may uh, could do very well to be like, okay, well, why don't you try and fuck off, right? And see how that goes for you. We will help you. We will. We will. We will help you along the way. We will. We will. Support your decision, sir. And if you fuck up, we will. You have to give them enough rope to hang themselves, yeah. right? We are talking about an economy that's likely to slow. We are talking about a foreign environment that is hard to deal with. Yeah, be- yeah a- Trump's gonna have to literally change the way we derive unemployment statistics. Yeah. In order to have a better record than Obama, we have reached peak employment. Yeah. There's no way we're hitting. We won't sink below 4.5. There's yeah. no way he can continue to add jobs. We were talking about a presidency that will probably oversee a decline in jobs. There's no way around that. While running on that. Yeah. Specifically. Specifically. Yeah. So, um, so the tone is, okay, we elected Trump because we wanted change. We didn't like the Obama uh, administration. We didn't like him for a number of reasons, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, I would say it's revenge, but yes. Yeah, uh, we. Uh, but we don't love the guy. Yeah. And there is something about that. I think, and that's across the board. They're like, we have serious misgivings. Where that wasn't true, uh, I think, on the left. I think a lot of people really loved Obama as a symbol, and, and there was a lot, and there still is, I think, a certain amount of personal loyalty, maybe, even. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's going to be held, as he's always demanded, and by this I mean Trump, it's going to be held to a certain standard that he said, I'm going to deliver such and such. And he has a long list of things he's going to deliver. Mm-hmm. And I think his base is going to be like, you owed us this because we had to look past a lot of your shortcomings. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Until that first terrorist attack. Uh, should we move on to outside the bubble? Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, my contribution this week, actually, I don't know how outside the bubble you can consider the economist. We've already talked about my love for the economist. Um, but for those of you who don't Ten know, years ago, it would have been, you know, considered uh, a right-wing rag, you know? Yeah, maybe 20 years ago, yeah. It would have yeah. been a right-wing, but it's certainly a very, like, uh, pro-market... Yeah. Uh, 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 sort of libertarian, uh, quote, English liberal kind of way of looking at the world. Um, I think it's swung to the left in recent years, so it's not quite as... Uh, it's not as quite as a pro-market or maybe even pro-business as it once was. Yeah. Um, but it does. it's still a little bit outside the bubble, I think, of typical, like, Democrats or American left. So that's why I'll, I, I won't go, I'll try not to draw from that well too often. But I do love The Economist. I think it's a great magazine. Um, so the reason I'm picking this article, though, because I think it is very much outside the bubble, was there's a, a good sort of longer piece about uh, manufacturing. Um, so basically, um, the idea is that politicians can't really bring back old factory jobs, and the reason is that when, when at some point manufacturing, when it was shipped overseas, it no longer became a, a, a high-paying job. There wasn't this group of manufacturers. What happened was they they automated whatever they could, and whatever low-skilled, low-wage jobs. Um, were left, they moved overseas. And so if you, even if you brought back jobs, it wouldn't be the sort of high-quality jobs. Even if you just took factories from China or wherever and put them in, in the U.S., they still wouldn't be high-quality jobs where people would be able to maintain the kind of lifestyles that we think of when we think of uh, what manufacturing meant to people in the 50s or 60s. So it's, it's a really interesting article, um, and I think I'd recommend anyone who reads it, because I think they're, on both sides, there's just this huge uh, romanticism about what manufacturing meant, even though there's manufacturing has been on its knees at least since 
I was a kid, right? So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly, a, it's a generation-old story. It's not that the Obama administration killed manufacturing. It's just that we, manufacturing isn't what it is, and concentrating on manufacturing means that you're probably losing a lot in terms of trying to improve the business climate and the employment climate for the vast majority of people. The engineers don't just make products. They make processes for making products. Yeah. And we're really good at making processes for making products that... Uh, eliminate the jobs that we claim to want to bring back. Right, right. I mean, that's and that's just the way of the business. So that I mean, if you have something that is can be done by rote, at this point we have machinery, we have all sorts of technology that allows us to right. move, move that off. So part of but, making a successful, profitable product is also making the process that makes it be profitable. Yeah, you squeeze out yeah. labor costs, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. that's the horrible and unfortunate. Uh, truth of how any sort of industrial process works or any kind of business process works. I mean, labor cost is something you try to reduce. Um, and so how do you... How do you? It's horrible only insofar as you think that... I mean, I think working an eight-hour assembly line job is uh, a surgery to the human spirit and uh, should at all points be fought against, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> we have very different takes on, uh, on, on labor. Like, I actually think that, like... Uh, I actually think that working like an honest eight, ten hour day work is actually really good for the soul. <laughs> <laughs> Just so I, we're clear, the, the article is called um, Why Old Fashioned Manufacturing Jobs Won't Return to the West. Um, so that's what that's uh, that's one of the articles. Um, there are a couple of other articles, but in general, if you just look up Economist and Manufacturing in this week, um, there are some really interesting there's some interesting pieces about it. And I think it's important just to understand what it means uh, to, in some ways, fetishize the way we do manufacturing jobs. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because we should be talking about services. Um, to make sure to make sure you deliver jobs to this generation and the next generation, you have to embrace what it means to provide uh, opportunities to a dynamic economy, not the economy of your grandfather. And that's really important to understand. And I think in a lot of ways, this administration, the rhetoric is going in the exact opposite direction. I mean, absolutely. It's a great article. Uh, everyone should read it and then think about whether they want to work in one of Trump's factories or not. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what, ha what actually happens with policy, whether or not it's just a lot of fluff. Because I think there are enough people who are... If there are no manufacturing jobs, no one's going to get votes out of them. So, like, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's just one of those things that, like, puppy dogs and, and rainbows everyone's for them like manufacturing jobs but when it comes down to it no one really does anything about it so. yeah. um, I think if you were to put manufacturing jobs in a lot of these communities people would work at them for a couple of days and then try to find a job at a restaurant and I think we're ignoring the sacrifices also people who worked those jobs when those were the only jobs to work Yeah. I don't think they were hoping that their children and grandchildren would be doing the same shit I think in general living standards have declined and manufacturing jobs aren't a way to bring that back. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's no really easy answer, so. Uh, I guess my contribution is just foreign policy, the magazine. Oh, yeah, good magazine. Uh, uh, and it's, it's worth checking out uh, and seeing what the point of view coming from there is. They weirdly they endorsed Hillary Clinton in this election. I guess that's not so weird. Yeah, yeah, the foreign all the foreign policy hawks were pro-Hillary Clinton. Yeah, which I think hurt her because, you know, they made the left have an argument that she was not a leftist candidate of foreign policies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
which is stupid. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how much Hillary Clinton lost because the left. Well, I guess I mean she did by definition lose because the left didn't support her in the same way that they. Right. Her. I don't think anybody was pers- from the right was persuaded to vote for Hillary Clinton as a result of foreign policy's endorsement. Oh, uh, that's true. And that's but true. I they, do they think, just don't pull the kind of numbers they once did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that gold leaf on her yeah. uh, movie poster did, in some ways, cause people to chain her to people at Kissinger and uh, you know, uh, take away from enthusiasm. Yeah. Moving on, I guess. Sure. You yeah. want to talk about random shit? Yeah. Uh, so this week I wanted to talk a little bit about random shit, and we talked a little bit about it, and I always find this a fascinating topic that I don't have enough time to talk to you about, which is uh, the publishing industry. And you uh, work in the publishing industry, and you have a lot of insight, and we brought this up on the podcast, but it's something that I just don't know very much about. Um, and I know that's a big topic, but... Uh, I thought it would be an interesting conversation. Sure. Yeah, what do you want to know? Uh, well, I guess uh, in, in general, and so this is different than uh, sort of the news media. I'm talking about actual book publishing. So I guess talk a little bit about uh, what you do in particular because you work for sort of a left-leaning publisher um, and how you see in particular political publishing, what that landscape looks like and how that's changed. Yeah, uh, that's a big topic. Yeah, most publishing things about the life of a book, right? Yeah. So your ideal book to publish is one that's going to live forever. So you want a book that's going to live for 150 years. Okay. So most publishing is about trying to find that book, that okay. book that's going to keep you alive. You know? Okay. Uh, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, you buy it cheap, publish it forever, you can publish whatever you want after that. Yeah. Politics is always ephemeral. Yeah. Uh, and topics are ephemeral. You know, even Trump is, hopefully will only have a four-year shelf life. Yeah. Um, acquiring is also tricky because finding writers that are willing to write about the trends as opposed to the actual issues that you can write a magazine article about and get paid now. Yeah. You know, that's where the money is. That's okay. That's interesting. So, I mean, you had actually mentioned this, I think, a couple of podcasts back where you're talking about uh, one of the reasons that uh, conservatives have a lot of power in the publishing industry, at least the political publishing industry, uh, is that conservatives buy books, right? Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. left doesn't. And so, do you have any? Um, do you have any feel for why that is? Is just, or is that? Well, the right doesn't buy fiction. They don't, um, read, they don't read fiction. So if they're going to buy a book, it's going to be a political screed mm-hmm. or a work of history that aligns with their politics. The right goes for that quick cash injection of a political book, okay. which may not have a life beyond the you know two years that it's important. Um, so, I mean, in, so has this always been true? Or? So the American publishing market is extremely small, right? There just aren't a lot of American publishers. You're saying there aren't any American publishers? Yeah, anymore. there's CBS. Okay. There's Norton. Okay. That's about it. Okay. So all the, most of the book publishers that you've heard of, Random House, yeah. Penguin, Little Brown. Yeah. Every Almost everybody that you've read a book by that you love yeah. is owned by some European conglomerate, okay. giant media corporation. Why did publishing go across overseas, or why? Why are there more UK publishers than German? 
Penguins was bought by Bertelsmann. Bertelsmann, yeah. Okay. And Penguin was owned by Pearson. Pearson was bought by Bertelsmann. Okay. So now it's a, all of English publishing is, is in the same boat as American mm-hmm. publishing as, okay. as a result of this huge merger. Okay. They still have offices there, but the actual the the company head is in, is run out of Germany. Okay. So it's Bertelsmann von Holtzbrink, Lagardère out of France. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, and that's that's publishing the English language. Wait, Simon & Schuster is still a U.S. company? Yeah, that's still a U.S. company. Okay. But it's owned by CBS, which is... A, I assume there are a bunch of independent U.S. companies. There are not. There are no independent... There are some, but there are not a lot. Okay. A lot of, like, you you look at a book and you'll see what's published by, and that's mm-hmm. an imprint. And imprints have a lot of freedom to do what they want within the structure of a larger multinational corporation. But these imprints are kept alive artificially. They, it creates an ecosystem in which there isn't that sense of uh, intellectual engagement in America to the extent that there would be in Germany or France. Fiction publishing is still that still is that also bankrolled by the Germans or yeah, for the most part, you know, that's where the big advances are coming from, and that's where you know that's who reads. And in France, Germany, a lot of these countries in Europe. Uh, it's a heavily subsidized industry uh, in the same way that like farming would be here. Okay. Uh, so they see it as important. They see the pro- project of publishing as culturally, politically, socially important, but that's effectively just giving them capital to acquire overseas. Yeah, so in, in, in Norway, for instance, the government is going to buy X amount of books from you to keep in their libraries. Uh, so yeah. every book you publish, the government is going to buy, so you will and stay in business. Okay. Uh, and these books go to the libraries, they go to schools. Well, I mean, technically our libraries buy books as well, but I guess it's not a federal contract. Not a federal contract. They buy them at a heavily reduced rate. It actually really hurts publishing. Libraries are predatory to American publishers. Oh, really? So it's the opposite. You know, I'm not, They're not paying you for the books at an advanced rate for every library to have. Right. They're saying just like, give us these books, you know, deal with it. Okay. Do you see anything like are there trends in the publishing industry that you think are interesting or like even encouraging? Uh, or is it all just down like that gloom and doom? Have you heard of an espresso book machine? No. So an espresso book machine is a, a book machine uh, that looks like a, a copy machine. Yeah. And they have them in bookstores around the United States. And you can take like a file, any file you have, to the, and they'll just print you a book in five minutes uh, there's one in you know the New York Public Library oh, wow. there's one at McNally Jackson uh, and but that technology's been around for a little while right? yeah ten years or so yeah so I mean it hasn't quite hasn't caught on uh, then I guess the real question is so do you you don't have a, any kind of e-tablet or you don't read electronically oh no I definitely do I read books on a phone like device all the time what, what kind of phone-like device do you use? I have a uh, uh, Compaq iPad from 2001. Oh, wow. I used to have one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the first, like, touchscreen device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to have one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2001 or two. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't connect with the internet. It's got, like, a... But you can store ebooks on it. Okay. And it... Uh, it's very sturdy. It's got, okay. like, a screen protector that goes over it and, like, yeah. latches on. Uh, and you can, you know, put enough. You can put it. It takes Mobi files, so you can read a Mobi file on it, which is Amazon's proprietary ebook uh-huh. jacket. And you know. All right, I, I think that's it for me, man. Yeah.
Uh, I guess we'll see you in a week. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. All right.